0: Jeff, what was the coldest place you've been?
1: Well, I don't know if it was really the coldest ever, but I do remember the first time that my soon-to-be, at that time, wife came to visit my family in Chicago. And the poor girl got off the plane at O'Hare Airport. (laughs) And it was uh, 14 below zero Celsius. Oh, God. Celsius. (laughs) And she just, I remember her walking out of the terminal. She just had this look on her face like, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> welcome to Chicago, honey. But what about you? Chuko, you've lived all over. Where's the coldest place you've been?
0: I remember winter in Hamburg where we also had minus 21 uh, degrees Celsius and that was also a shock.
1: Yeah, right? How do they describe that? There's a word there's a, uh, for that in, uh, in German. Is there? Kalt.
0: Cut. <laughs> Cut. <laughs>
1: From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast.
0: So, Jeff, this episode is about something that we humans have done for thousands of years. We're going to talk about heating our homes. And it sounds easy, but... It'll be surprisingly hard if you want to do it right.
1: And by right, you mean if you want to do it sustainably and in a climate-friendly way.
0: So, Jeff, imagine we are far south. And I mean really, really far south. We are in Antarctica. A painfully strong, cold wind is whipping in our faces. We are wrapped up thickly from head to toe in windproof clothing. Fortunately... We are wearing goggles and gloves so the icy snow doesn't blow into our eyes.
2: There is so much wind and so much snowfall that it's very dangerous because you are in what is called a whiteout. And if you go outside in a whiteout, then you lose your orientation because all you can see, if you look up, down, to the left, to the right, it's all just white.
0: Okay, so I'm definitely going back inside. Yes, please. So this was Guus Lupin's. He was in Antarctica multiple times to work on a research station, the Princess Elizabeth Station to be precise, and that is run by the International Polar Foundation based in Belgium. Ruse's job is to make sure that the station runs smoothly on renewable energy.
2: Uh, when you want to know okay, how many kilowatt hours are we going to produce with one solar panel, it's completely different uh, in Antarctica than it is over here. The big advantage is that you have 24 hours of daylight.
0: At least in the summer months, but there are no people at the station during the winter.
2: Yeah, I imagine not. And and so with 24
1: hours of daylight, it's actually then easier to use renewables in Antarctica than in other
2: places.
0: Well, yes and no. You have cloudy days there too, so right. wind turbines are still needed, um, and that's a bit more of a challenge.
2: We had to look to, for wind turbines which can resist the katabatic uh, winds on the Antarctic Plateau and uh, they can go up to 200 kilometers per hour or more.
0: So often, the solar panels and the wind turbines generate more electricity than the station needs. Um, And all that excess energy gets stored in batteries. And when those are fully charged, they use the electricity to heat water in the tanks.
1: And that's used for the hot water supply or for the heating?
0: For the heating of newer additions to the station. (sighs) But here's the kicker. For the main station, Hus says heating is not a problem.
2: We don't really have problems with heating, we do have problems with cooling. Because of the, the station was designed, uh, it's a bit like a spaceship where the technical core is in the center. And so all the heat that is produced by these inverters, by all the technical equipment, is in the middle of the station. And the outer shelf of the station is extremely well insulated. And we have a very efficient ventilation system with a heat recuperation. So on on days where there's a lot of energy being produced and used, we have more problems with cooling the station down than heating it up.
1: That That is so interesting. I don't think anyone would have guessed that their problem is cooling down in Antarctica. No,
0: I, mean, I don't is, think so either. kind of wild when
1: you think about it. So at the end of the day, the station is actually heated by the electrical equipment's waste heat.
0: Exactly. Um, and you also have some light that comes through the windows. Um, so it's called a passive house. And actually, when the Princess Elizabeth station was built 12 years ago, it was the only zero-emission station in Antarctica, and funnily enough, still is.
1: I'm ready for the caveat.
0: Oh, come on, I want to hear you say it. But? But? (laughs) So yes, the small caveat is that the researchers don't want to sit in the station all the time to do their research. They actually need to be outside. They need to collect samples and data. And for that, they use mobile units.
2: Most of them are like shipping containers on sledges. There are some units which have beds inside because some of the scientists, they go into the field for multiple days or weeks. (laughs) There are mobile units with kitchens. There are mobile units with showers, mobile units with labs, uh, scientific labs. So most of them are in the form of a shipping container put on these big sledges, which are then being pulled by tractors into into the snow.
0: That's
1: taking the whole tiny house principle to the next level.
0: Exactly. And as we can imagine, that's where it gets tricky.
2: In the past few years, we used a lot of new solar panels. We put them on the sides, on the facades and on the top of the mobile units, just for filling up the batteries. And when the batteries are full, they also send their excess power towards electric heaters. But, of course, if there are multiple days without any sun, because there's a storm or something, then it's not uh, possible to have enough uh, solar power.
0: And in those cases, they obviously have to use heaters that run on fossil fuels. Um, And, of course, they also have uh, backup diesel generators at the research station in case something goes horribly wrong.
1: Well, yeah, for sure, in that kind of environment, you want a little redundancy there.
0: Definitely. I love my job. <laughs> Why? I don't have to go outside. Uh, yeah,
1: God, crazy. Ah, <laughs> oh, Steffi, I wish that that was caught on the recording.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I did it. I did it.
1: Oh, perfect. <laughs> but nonetheless, so okay, so we still have some fossil fuels left to to get out of the whole process. Mm-hmm. Does Hus also have plans for that?
0: Yes, he actually does. Um, So, Rus says that they still have too much electricity, and sometimes they have to turn the solar panels off for days at a time. So he's looking to somehow store that energy.
2: If we can store this energy seasonally, then we could also use it for heating purposes in our mobile units.
1: Now, I understand that experts suggest that we should use excess renewable electricity to generate hydrogen. Is that
2: an option for Antarctica?
0: That's exactly what Guus is exploring.
2: Uh, we are now busy with a, a new project, which will start in the beginning of, of twenty two, so next year, in a couple of months, where we will build a test setup to produce hydrogen, generate uh, our own hydrogen, compress it, store it, and then using it for multiple purposes.
0: So Sylvain, who is our sound designer, uh, will help me now set the scene. Perfect. Thanks, Silva, That sounds very cool. So, if the test setup goes well, Rüs and his team will install the hydrogen technology in a shipping container. Ship it to Antarctica. Put it on a sledge. I can totally imagine this right now. And pull it 200 kilometers inland from the coast to the station
2: that we're going to implement it and, and be the first ones in Antarctica who are going to uh, produce, store, and use hydrogen in Antarctica.
0: Oh, just listening to that makes me shiver.
1: Yeah, but it's so fascinating that they can actually construct a what is effectively an emission-free building in Antarctica, the bottom of the world, where people are warm and comfortable even while it's minus 25 degrees Celsius outside.
0: Well... I have my renewable heating system, oh, my cup of tea.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you're enjoying your cuppa. But I mean, you know, that's, that's pretty normal. You want to heat the person, not the place. And a nice cup of tea is a great way to do that.
0: No, definitely. And in the UK, it's kind of also the, I would say, fossil fuel energy on which people uh, need, <laughs> oh <my> to <laughs> need to yeah. work on. So, okay. uh, yep.
1: <laughs> All right. That's, that's, I, like that, I like that analogy. That works. But when you think about it, it's it's really incredible how much energy we use for heating. Uh, in in doing the research for the this episode, I looked up some numbers, and I was kind of surprised Isn't that to find my you- job. Well, we'll get there later. <laughs> Padawan, uh, <laughs> um, I came to find out that about half the world's total energy consumption actually goes towards heating. Now, that includes heat for industrial processes, which is obviously enormous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, half of that, so half of that half, mm-hmm. is for heating buildings and providing hot water.
0: And for cooking?
1: Well, yes, exactly. Cooking, I assume, would be included in the hot water part. Um, but here, here's the real shocker, all right? Only about one-tenth of the heat is produced from renewable energy sources. That's according to the IEA, the International Energy Agency.
0: Yes, and that checks out. Probably all the places I've lived in were either heated by gas or oil, so fossil fuels. And of course, uh, as we all know, the older the building, the less insulated they are. That's a difference to the Antarctic Research Station, which is a fairly recent building. So in older buildings, a lot of that precious heat is wasted. So Jeff... um, you know, talking about the places that you've lived in because you've also lived in different places. Were your buildings easy to keep warm, or did you have any kind of heating nightmares?
1: Well, I think you know you can see it in the in the different architectures between uh, North America and Europe uh, where the the building materials are so different. Mm-mm. Um it's not not uncommon uh, in older buildings in um, in the Midwest that in the winter they'll actually put up a sheet of plastic that gets taped what? over the windows. Yeah. They, they tape it over the windows because you know you're not going to be opening the window all winter. Again, in big contrast to the German traditions oh, wow.
3: of uh, Luftung, <laughs> Yeah, Lüftung.
1: Um, and, and during the winter, you can actually see that piece of plastic getting puffed in and out while the air is is getting Whoa. pushed through the cracks of the windows. And so that's, that's a method that they use to increase the insulation uh, for old buildings. Wow. Where – for anyone who's who spent any time in Germany, you know when you close one of those windows, it's pretty much like an airlock at a space station. It's just completely <laughs> vacuum shut. Um, so yeah, it's it's wildly different.
0: Well, I think one of the things that I did appreciate, for example, in English buildings is their affinity for carpets. They put carpet everywhere. And, um, and I think this is, <laughs> this is also something that was So in bedrooms, I find it quite nice um, because you always have like a, a fluffy or a warm uh, like flooring <laughs> that you will be walking over. But um, I've had some places where carpet has been in certain rooms where you would not want to imagine.
1: Uh-huh. I know exactly what you mean. But, but <laughs> speaking, to your, speaking to your English example, mm-hmm. that, that is a big problem in the UK. Um, and that's exactly where Tom Collins is from.
4: Homes in Britain are a bit distinctive from most of our European neighbours. Our homes are very old. Many of those buildings, of course, have solid walls. They don't have a cavity or any insulation. And they're also quite porous. We have quite a high air change rate in our buildings.
1: The most common heating in Britain is a gas boiler, which often provides both hot water and heat.
4: Uh, UK homes are also relatively small, we have our heating technology right in the living space with us. Quite often you'll find a boiler in a kitchen. Tom was tasked to replace
1: the boiler with something better, so that homes in the UK, and eventually other countries too, can be heated more sustainably. This is a huge and, of course, complicated
0: task. And I think it's also a very urgent and important thing that we need to do. Um, at least it seems that people are becoming more conscious of the problem. So in many countries, buildings now need an energy pass, and... Um, If you buy or rent a place, you can immediately see how much energy it consumes.
1: And Shuko, would you mind sharing with us your home's energy pass?
0: Jeff, I have to admit that I haven't even checked, so um, (laughs) I'm not quite sure. But seeing as I've never had an issue in my home, um, I'm going to assume it's something like an A or an A+. At
1: least on the comfort scale, right?
0: Exactly, definitely.
1: Right, okay, that's what's important. And in the Northern Hemisphere, we're all coming into winter now. And as we mentioned before, winters here in Chicago are no joke. We absolutely depend on a heating system that works. Luckily, where we live, natural gas is just coming right out of the pipe. It's so convenient. Oh, wow. Yeah. But of course, we have the chance to use renewable energy. It just can be surprisingly hard. And that's what Tom Collins is trying to solve in this quest to find a solution that allows people to heat their homes without warming the climate. He has tried and tried and tried again.
4: I've been a research and development engineer at Bosch for 15 years. And over that time, I've worked on a really wide range of new technologies from micro-CHP which is combined heat and power with three piston sterling engines, which are really cool, by the way, through to heat pump technologies, all sorts of integrated systems, combining those together, gas absorption heat pumps. That's another quite fun technology. We've looked at a really wide range of technologies and developed lots of products, but none of them have made the jump into successful market penetration. And you can understand why. Most of those technologies would have been much more expensive than a boiler, and their CO2 saving might have only been 10%. Yeah, it's
0: not, it's not really that great.
1: Although, Tom did mention heat pumps, and those are working with electricity. True. And so, if your electricity is generated from wind or solar, then that is technically a fully renewable heating system.
0: So, my electricity at home is 100% renewable. What's the problem with heat pumps?
1: Oh, you want to talk about heat pumps. Okay, more in depth, fine. Um, First things first, uh, Tom reminds everyone what a heat pump really is.
4: Heat pumps are beautiful thermodynamic devices. (laughs) A heat pump is like a refrigerator that pumps heat from a cold place to a hot place. In your fridge, it pumps it from the inside of the fridge to your room. In the case of a heat pump, it pumps it from some source outdoors which could be the ground, or probably more commonly in the future, the outside air, and then pushes that heat uphill, if you like, into the home to heat your radiators or underfloor heating.
1: I love the expression, beautiful thermodynamic devices. That's great.
4: I know.
0: I wouldn't have chosen that word either. I
1: love the passion. <laughs> I love it. And I say that unironically. It's really cool. Um, as always, now comes the but Basically, yeah, of course. Uh, basically, they're not compatible with most British homes. British homes are built for a heating that gets pretty hot pretty quickly. You turn it on, the house heats up, mm-hmm. and then you turn it off again for a couple hours. But heat pumps generally operate at lower temperatures. So to make up for that, you need larger radiators in the rooms.
0: Bosh, I can imagine this to be a big home renovation project then.
4: Uh, yeah, it can mean that, and it doesn't necessarily end there. You'll have to find space outdoors for the heat collector, the air source heat collector. And that might be quite difficult because our houses are often very close together. And you may well have to find space inside your home for a hot water tank because a a heat pump won't do this instantaneous hot water trick that our boilers do. Um, You have a hot water storage tank associated with a heat pump. And then if your pipework in your home is too small and difficult to replace, it may get really difficult to get a heat pump in.
0: So that's heat pumps. Not a great option if you want to convert heating in Britain to be sustainable on a really large scale. So Tom is running out of options here.
4: And then in 2015, I was invited along to a workshop looking at hydrogen conversion and Up until that point, people had mentioned hydrogen as an alternative to natural gas. But most engineers like me, in fact, including me, had sort of laughed at the possibility because we all know that hydrogen has some special properties that might make that difficult.
0: Indeed, it's explosive. (laughs) On the other hand, when it can potentially be used in Antarctica, why not in Britain?
1: Why not in Britain, indeed? Uh, hydrogen is more explosive uh, than natural gas. That's, that's true. But solving that would be a second step. The first question, in any case, was, one day in the future, could we just use the existing gas pipes? Mm-hmm. The network that is already in almost every British home. Instead of natural gas, which is largely methane, pump hydrogen through it.
0: You're, you're now going to explain to me why this could be a problem, right?
1: <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Thank you. Uh, the, the, the reason is that hydrogen itself is a very small molecule. Uh, it's, it's a much smaller molecule mm-hmm. than methane, that is. Um, so perhaps it could quite easily leak through the
4: pipes. So in 2016, a report came out. It was funded by the UK government and one of our gas networks. And it was a desk study, a really detailed engineering desk study, investigating the feasibility of converting a large city. In this case, they chose Leeds, which is a large city in the north of England, converting the existing gas networks over to hydrogen. This desk report showed that essentially it should be feasible, and that has been a total game changer. And with that, Tom got one step closer to finding
1: a sustainable solution for heating, because a sustainable fuel could easily be available virtually anywhere in Britain in the near future.
0: But before we go forward, I actually have two questions for you. Um, So I'll start with the first one. Okay. Why don't the tiny hydrogen molecules escape from the gas pipes?
4: Let's let Tom answer that. <laughs> the reality is that actually the leaks you get in gas pipes aren't to do with the molecule size of the gas. They're driven by the viscosity of the gas. And actually, although hydrogen is a very light gas with a very small molecule, it's relatively viscous. And so the leak rate of hydrogen out through a, you know, a real-world leak is not that much higher than for natural gas.
0: OK, um, that does make sense. Um, so then on to my second question: Why is hydrogen more sustainable than methane or natural gas? Oh wait, that one I can't actually answer myself because I have done my homework.
1: I love it when you ask rhetorical questions. That's great. OK. <laughs> all right, Shuko, please please share your homework with the class. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Shuko's presentation on hydrogen.: I
0: want a drum roll. <laughs> <clears throat> OK, so. Hydrogen helps us decarbonize our energy system because it doesn't contain carbon. Plain and simple. A methane molecule is four hydrogen atoms and one carbon. In the hydrogen gas, you have just molecules made up from two hydrogen atoms. Again, no carbon. So when you burn hydrogen, the only product is water. No carbon dioxide or CO2. Just pure, clean water. But, Jeff, here comes the but. Always. The big question when it comes to sustainability is, what type of hydrogen do you use?
1: Um, I, I prefer the, <laughs> the hydrogen kind of hydrogen. <laughs> I, sorry, not to be sarcastic about it. What do you mean different types?
0: So uh, there's different examples. Uh, you have blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, and or gray hydrogen. And I'm not inventing this. Um, and so which one do you think <laughs> is best for the climate?
1: Uh well, definitely not gray. Mm. Blue sounds good, but I suppose green is best.
0: You've got the gist, so ding, 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 correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these colors are basically labels telling you how the hydrogen was produced. Um, and because we can't suck hydrogen out of the ground like oil and gas, we have to synthesize it and manufacture it. And that costs energy and resources. Um, Depending on what goes into hydrogen production, hydrogen gets its color label. So, for instance, a conventional method to produce hydrogen is splitting methane into hydrogen and CO2. This produces CO2, which is bad for the climate. So, this type of hydrogen is, I suppose you can guess, the gray Gray hydrogen. hydrogen. Got it. Exactly. Nowadays, people try to capture the CO2 instead of releasing it in the air. They want to store the CO2 so that it can't affect the climate. So in this case, the hydrogen is either blue or green. It is made by splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. Electrolysis.
1: Electrolysis.
0: This process needs electricity, which is supposed to come from renewable sources like wind and solar.
1: So that's what the researchers at the Belgian Antarctic Station want to do. And that's also the hydrogen that we want.
0: Exactly. Green hydrogen made from renewable is the good stuff. Wow. Bonus question, Jeff. Any idea what pink hydrogen it might be? And I'm not inventing this either. Mm. It's hydrogen made with nuclear power. Oh. So, not many greenhouse gas emissions there, but a host of other issues.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Okay.
0: I think the important point here is that hydrogen pairs very well with renewable electricity because you can convert it back and forth. Mm -hmm. So when there's a surplus of wind or solar energy, you can convert it to hydrogen and store it in a hydrogen tank. When you need electricity, you can convert the hydrogen back. So it makes the energy system of the future much more flexible and less dependent on sunshine or wind.
1: But all that converting also means a lot of losses. We've talked about this in in previous episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You always lose some portion of the energy in the transmission process.
0: Yes, unfortunately we do. So using electricity directly is always the preferred option. But when you can't electrify something, green hydrogen is a good sustainable alternative.
1: This reminds me again of the the last time we talked about hydrogen on the podcast. Mm-hmm. That was that was also about converting hydrogen back to electricity using fuel cells. Uh, you remember Mike Fole told yes. us about how critical these are for space flights, as well as on the International Space Station itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember he told us about how bitter the cold was in space, and, and <laughs> yes. how he found that out the hard way when the heat went out.
2: And as we floated there in front of the window. You could feel the heat leaving our bodies going through the window. You could feel the cold on the other side of that window. And then, because it was absolutely silent, except for our breath or if we said anything, then uh, we started to hear a, a kind of a creak, chink, chink, ding, ding. And that was the metal of the space station contracting as it got colder.
0: Wow, that's, that's really chilling.
1: Quite literally, and for everyone of our listeners that had not listened to that yet, I highly recommend going and uh, checking out episode five. it's It's really a fascinating episode. But when it works, electric heat should be a good way to keep our home comfy, whether in space or or on earth. That's what Tom says too.
4: Honestly, looking at it, heat should be one of those easy to do things. It's stationary. You don't need all that really high performance. It's embedded in people's homes. It's well controlled. It's well understood. You know, why can't we make heat one of these easy to electrify things? But actually, it turns out, in a lot of cases, heat's one of those hard to do things. And we might have to prioritize hydrogen for it.
0: Right. And we discussed this before. Electric heating can be surprisingly hard to do. Burning fuel in a boiler is much easier to accomplish.
1: And that's exactly where Tom is at right now. Remember, when we left off, when he realized hydrogen could actually be delivered to homes using the existing gas pipes. Mm -hmm. That was the outcome of a study which was presented to him at a workshop.
4: And I was absolutely blown away. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Here was a potential technology switch that would cost nominally the same as a natural gas boiler that we have now and wouldn't just reduce CO2 emissions by 10%. They would reduce it by almost 100%. And, and to me, then, that was a no-brainer. We had to have that technology in the mix.
1: But then, how do you use it for heating? How do you build a boiler that burns hydrogen instead of methane?
4: Mm-hmm. There's this myth, there's this understanding. Everybody knows. It's just not possible to have a hydrogen boiler. And I thought, that, that can't be true. So we went back, to, went back to our R&D site at Bosch, and a, a few engineers got together, and we decided to... To build one, we got a scrap boiler, we reached out and found some existing industrial technology for burning hydrogen, we integrated it with our heat cells, and we built a white box, the shape, size, the, the casing of a boiler, but it could burn 30 kilowatts, which is the standard output of pure hydrogen.
0: Bosch researchers at their finest. It works.
4: Well,
1: yes, it works in the sense that an early prototype seems to do the trick.
0: Sure, but I guess there was a bunch of problems to solve. And as I said before, hydrogen is explosive.
4: That was a challenge, but it was a challenge that we were ready to face as engineers. And we went and did fundamental research. We understood the risks. We used all the wealth of existing academic research, and we did our own experiments.
1: So that is the polished version of Tom's talk about the development of a hydrogen-burning boiler.
0: Now you've got me curious. What's the unpolished version.
1: Thank you so much for asking. Uh, He says when when the fundamental research and and doing their own experiments, what he actually means is this.
4: Really early on in the project, we took a van full of boilers up to an experimental test facility and we we brought home a van full of scrap. Uh And in the week in between, we learned an awful lot, really, you know, creating the worst case circumstances we could envisage, <laughs> blowing a load of stuff up, which was great fun, some really big bangs, but it's allowed us to then understand the physics and develop the safety strategies so that they are incapable of happening in an appliance.
1: You know, it's funny that it seems like an awful lot of our researchers in Bosch are doing things in, uh, quote, the, the backyard labs, like when they were doing the fire <laughs> testing before. Uh but anyway, so so now they've learned a lot about how hydrogen behaves. What they have to change in a standard boiler to make it suitable for hydrogen. Shuko, do you trust him that they figured it out and that it's now completely safe?
0: Of course. I trust our Bosch engineers 100%. I mean, and you know what our motto is? Invent it for life, Jeff.
1: That's right, of course. But as, as a good researcher, even Tom doesn't fully <laughs> trust himself. Uh, so in order to, to convince himself that this new technology is absolutely safe, he came up with a very
4: unique test. And in the end, we decided we'll make sure that we can pass the daughter test.
0: The daughter test?
4: Where I bring my daughter into the, into the factory and invite one of my team to invite her to go and turn the boiler on. And actually, if we're happy to do that, oh then I know we've done it. God. I know that we've made a boiler that we, in our guts, believe is safe. Wow. Wow.
0: He must have really trusted himself to be able to do that. I guess so. Well, Jeff, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pull out a bit of my own research now uh, into the safety of this hydrogen boiler. Oh of course. Um, so as you told us, Tom and his team blew some stuff up. Mm-hmm. I really wish I could have been there for that. Um, <laughs> but they also did some thorough basic research using computer simulations, and for that, they had help from Niso Beishausen. He's a researcher at Bosch Thermotechnology in the Netherlands.
3: I'm focusing on detailed computer simulations of combustion processes. And recently that mainly focuses on hydrogen combustion.
0: So in the past, scientists in his fields were really focused on combustion of fossil fuels, um, as we've heard before, uh, because for a long time it was important to make those as efficient as possible. But how hydrogen actually burns was not understood to the same level of detail.
3: Uh, So... uh, We still discover new and exciting things about hydrogen combustion.
0: So the first thing to note about burning hydrogen, you can't see it. A hydrogen flame is almost invisible.
1: And why is that?
0: Let me put it the other way around. Why can we see natural gas flames? Niso says it's because of CH. CH is a molecule that gets produced when natural gas burns.
3: And uh, CH can get into an excited state, and when it returns to the ground state, then uh, light is emitted with a certain wavelength. And this causes uh, methane flames to appear uh, blue.
0: Why is there no CH in hydrogen flames? Because there is no C, no carbon.
1: Which is exactly why we use hydrogen in the first place. We don't want that nasty carbon.
0: (laughs) And that's a problem.
1: Wait, I thought carbon is the problem.
0: No, carbon is also a problem, because the carbon compound in a flame Ah. are used for flame detection in a boiler. So in a methane boiler, the flame detector knows that the flame is burning because of the carbon.
1: So the flame detector doesn't work in a hydrogen boiler.
0: Plus, you can't use a visual detection, because the flame is invisible except instead of CH in a hydrogen flame, you have OH.
3: OH emits uh, light in the ultraviolet spectrum. So it's just at the edge of the visible light range. So uh, most people cannot actually see hydrogen flames.
0: Which is not so much of a problem because an ultraviolet light sensor can see it. So that's a way to
3: detect the hydrogen flame is burning. Problem solved. Another visual difference is due to uh, a very interesting phenomenon that is called preferential diffusion. So if you look at the flames of a kitchen stove, for instance, you see a series of small blue conical flames with a rounded flame tip. Now, hydrogen has the tendency to diffuse, so to move out of the flame tip towards the base of the flame. So that means that if you would visualize a hydrogen flame with a UV camera, it would look like the the flame tips are basically chopped off.
0: So unburnt hydrogen comes out of the top of the flame and moves back down to the base where it burns. And that has consequences.
3: The flame is basically burning much closer to the burner. And by that process, it is also heating up the burner much more. So that means that you could have larger thermal stresses in the burner, which could affect, for instance, the the lifetime of the burner.
0: That's one way how hydrogen makes a difference. Uh, NISO says understanding the effect of preferential diffusion was the key to developing the boiler. It has many safety implications. And this is where it gets a little more complicated. Imagine a burner. That's basically a plate with holes in it. The flames are at the top of the plate. What you don't want is that the flames move into the holes and into your pipes. Hydrogen flames do that more easily than natural gas flames they move through a pipe much quicker.
3: This, of course, is something that you want to prevent. So what basically happens when this flame travels through a hole in a burner is that the flame gets cooled by the sides of the burner wall. So if this cooling is strong enough, then the flames will basically get extinguished while they travel through the burner hole. Now this is, of course, what you want, uh, because the flames can basically not survive a travel through a burner hole. So basically what you want is to design a burner where this actually always happens.
1: I see. That's exactly why the temperature of the burner is such an important factor.
0: Yes, and other factors influence this too. But you know what? Let's stick with temperature for now. Mm -hmm. The temperature of the flame itself is important as well, because, unfortunately, burning hydrogen is not necessarily as clean as we always hear.
1: So the combustion product isn't exactly just heat and water? Because that was my understanding.
0: So that was news to me as well. The reason for that is, it's not only hydrogen and oxygen that are participating in the combustion process, a boiler uses regular air as well. So there's a lot more in there than just oxygen, for example, nitrogen.
3: You can still have some nitrogen oxides as unwanted combustion products. And of course you want to avoid this because nitrogen oxides are also a greenhouse gas and they also can produce smog. We don't want that. Not
0: at all. But here's the solution. Just keep it cool.
3: We have to avoid very high temperatures and we have to avoid that these uh, gases that contain nitrogen reside at high temperatures for for a very long time. So that means that if you design uh, a boiler we have to make sure that the flame temperature is very low. So we add a high amount of air to the fuel. So the fuel-to-air ratio at the point of combustion is very low, which reduces the flame temperature.
0: As we can hear, there's a lot of things to consider. Niso and his team built up all of this from theoretical knowledge and used it to run computer simulations. Many different factors were considered. Um, Things like, how big do you want the flames to be? How close should the water pipes be to the burner? What is the ideal thickness of a burner plate? Computer simulations help to find that sweet spot, the ideal combination of all of these parameters.
3: It is easy in the computer simulations to change the design, to rerun it and to basically test a large number of different types of burners before you actually go to a manufacturer and say, okay, now we want to have this burner with these specifications and test it in the lab. So before you go to the lab and actually test a burner, you have virtually tested uh, a large number of of burners, which can save you a lot of time and and money in the end.
0: And that's literally how the theoretical side of the project worked out.
1: And with all that data and the recommendations from NISO's team, the engineering team around Tom was able to eventually build a boiler that burns hydrogen. Mm -hmm. When they first turned it on, though, it was pretty anticlimactic.
4: And uh, the first moment it lit, we didn't even know it had. (laughs) It was so smooth and so quiet and worked so well. (laughs) None of us, it was only when the computer screen told us that we'd successfully lit the boiler that we knew. (laughs) And that was a beautiful moment.
1: It's almost like the first time you drive in an electric car. It's barely noticeable, whether it's on or not. (laughs) But what Tom and his team did for us, it is put some microphones up close.
4: Okay. So the first thing that starts is the water pump. So we've got water circulation running through the heating system. That pump switches on. The water's now moving through the system. The second thing we hear is the fan. The fans ramping up, modulating, and achieving a stable speed, providing the air needed for combustion. Next, we start a spark. We don't want to inject gas before we've got a spark there to light it. We want to control combustion process. But almost at exactly the same moment, in comes the gas valve, that deep clonk. And that, then the gas flows, primes its way through the system and enters the burner. And with hydrogen, that's fast. So almost immediately, you hear the flame. And we're right up close to it. You can hear that burner light. Another little dull thud noise. But outside the boiler, you've noticed nothing. In fact, our boiler is called the stealth boiler, because while we've been right up close listening to all these processes from the room, you've heard nothing.
1: And now we have hot water, sustainably heated hot water. But that boiler we heard was not the prototype. That was a much further advanced device, because when they had that boiler that could burn hydrogen, the team still wasn't done. Then they wanted to modify this hydrogen boiler so that it can actually burn natural gas.
0: Wait, wait. What? They went back to natural gas?
1: (laughs) Yes. Why? Well, because that's what we have in our pipes today. So Ah. when when you buy a boiler like that, you're basically ready for Uh the hydrogen of the future.
4: And those boilers can just go in as a direct, like-for-like, natural replacement for an existing boiler when it reaches its natural end of life. But then on the day of conversion, you just change over a small number of components in a very short space of time, and the boiler's burning carbon-free hydrogen.
0: That
1: kind of felt like a wow moment.
0: It definitely was. Wow. Did you discuss with Tom how soon that day might come? I mean, the day of conversion he's talking about.
1: That's still unclear. Uh, It's possible that the government in the UK will require that all boilers sold from 2026 onwards have to be hydrogen ready. Until then, the hydrogen ready Bosch boiler will go through some pilot projects. Mm -hmm. It's currently heating up a couple of test homes. Um, A bigger pilot project is scheduled for
4: 2022. H-105, which is a project in Scotland, and there they'll be installing hydrogen boilers in 300 homes with real users, real members of the public, using them for five years, hopefully. And that was really exciting. That's called the Neighbourhood Trial. Oh, that's cool. And Mm -hmm. it's the first real step in the UK's hydrogen strategy to demonstrating hydrogen in real people's homes. So I
0: find it really exciting, and I'm pretty sure other countries will look closely, because the UK is certainly not the only country where gas boilers need to be replaced with more sustainable alternatives um, over the next few years. Yeah, for sure. Now, there's only one question left, right? What's that? Well, you know, we were talking about hydrogen being explosive, and I mean, is, is this going to be safe?
1: Are you asking if Tom thinks it's safe?
0: Well, I mean, will he let his daughter turn on the boiler? <laughs>
1: Good question. Here's a recording I received from him a few days ago.
4: Okay, welcome to our lab. How are you doing? Good. All right. This is Sam.
3: Hi. Hello. Please, could you walk over there and turn on the boiler?
4: Yeah. While we stand behind this
1: wall.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's running.
3: Thank
1: you. Well done. Really, what a great effort by the entire team. And I'm sure this will help make heating more climate-friendly. Many homes will probably switch to heat pumps or other sustainable options. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: But where that's not feasible, a hydrogen-ready boiler really seems like the way to go.
0: I totally agree. I think it's also a big deal that we can reuse that infrastructure that's already there. I mean, the gas pipe network. But moving on, do you want to give us a sneak preview of next episode, Jeff?
1: From know-how to wow. Absolutely. We're going to stay in a cold climate and go over to Minnesota in the north of the United States. Engineers there have figured out how to best reproduce the human voice.
0: Are we finally getting an episode where you'll be singing, Jeff? (laughs) Because this sounds really interesting and I can't wait to talk to you next month. (laughs)
1: Well, until next month, stay warm.
0: Stay warm as well, Jeff. Bye.
1: The Bosch Global Podcast. Hello, I'm Steph again, the producer of From Know How to Wow. I have a surprise for you. In December, you will hear us even twice. The next episode will be on December 16. And on December
3: 30th, we have a special episode for you.